This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. This is a Business Radio special presentation from the floor of the Wharton People Analytics Conference in Philadelphia, bringing together some of the top minds and innovative ideas and how data can improve your organization and develop smarter leaders and better businesses. Here's your host, Professor Kate Massey. Hello, everyone, and welcome. This is a special presentation of SiriusXM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. As we are live at the 2018 Wharton People Analytics Conference, this is the fifth annual conference. Down here in Center City, Philadelphia, I'm your host, Cade Massey, faculty and co-director of Wharton People Analytics. Also co-host of Wharton Moneyball here on Business Radio on Wednesday mornings. Over the next hour, we will speak with four leading minds in the people analytics industry. If you don't know, people analytics is a quickly growing corner of the world where we, br- we combine technology and analytics, technology data analytics, and all the employee decisions organizations make, whether it's hiring, firing, retaining, building better groups, assessing culture, whatever it is in managing your employees can be made better by more rigorous and analytic use of data. This conference, we've been doing it for a few years now. We, we blend academics and industry. We think we're all going to be better off if we can work together, and we've tried to do that here every year every spring here in Center City, Philadelphia. Joining the show today, we're going to have Steve Kaplan, Professor of Entrepreneurship and Finance at the University of Chicago, the Booth School there, the business school. We're going to have Brad Grant. Brad is Vice President of Baseball Operations for the Cleveland Indians. And we're going to have Michael Metzger. He's the Senior Managing Director at Teach for America. So a nice range of folks there. But we're going to start off today, we're going to start off this hour with Elena Botello. Elena is our first guest. She is a partner at the leadership advisory firm, GH Smart. She is also the co-author of a brand new book called The CEO Next Door, in which they write about the research the firm has done for years now on what makes an effective CEO. Elena, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Kate. We're delighted to have you, and we're delighted to have you at the conference. Um, Elena will be presenting very shortly after this presentation. In fact, I appreciate your stepping away in the few minutes you have before your presentation. Elena will be on a panel talking about CEO analytics. She is an expert in this. It's what she's been doing for years now. And her book, though it's just out, has just, she just got this great news. Congrats, Elena. New York Times bestseller. Thank you. Yes, very excited. How, do, how does that feel? It feels great. Yes? <laughs> yes. So we want to hear about your research. We want to hear about your book. What is it that you've done in this, in this piece of work? Well, <clears throat> so our firm, GH Smart, is a leadership advisory firm. And what that means is that leading investors and boards call GH Smart to help them bring facts and data and analytics to their most important leadership priorities. It's things like who should run the company. It's things like how do I make sure that I've got the right leadership team aligned in the right way to execute on strategy. And so with the CEO Genome Project that's featured in the book, The CEO Next Door, what we've done is <coughs> we've partnered with leading academics, um, Steve Kaplan, the University of Chicago, SAS Institute, NYU, and, and others, to really take a close lens on the data about what it takes to be a successful CEO. Mm-hmm. So um, we're going to be curious to hear your um, insights there, but can you first tell us your methodology? How, how do you go about figuring that out? Absolutely. Well, it starts with the fact that our firm, over a 20-year history, assembled 17,000 in-depth assessments of leaders. And those are anywhere from CEOs to the C-suite. It's a very broad and deep data set. It's the data that was gathered not by, be, not by looking at resumes or any kind of publicly available information, but four or five-hour expert interviews with each of these leaders walking through their entire career history. What's also unique about our data is that Unlike most leadership studies that really focus on Fortune 500, we cover companies in size that range from Fortune 10 to a $10 million company owned by a private equity firm. And so it really covers the full span of companies, Mm -hmm. um, as well as every industry sector. Okay. Elena, can you you tell us about the interviews a little bit? Because I think this is what most distinguishes you from other people in this space who are trying to predict CEO success. Many folks are trying to do this with relatively pithy tests. Yes. And, and the best of these might have a little signal. So many of these don't have any signal. Yes. You guys are doing something very different. You said yes. four to five hour interviews with expert interviewers. 
What is it you're looking at there, and how do you render that down to data that you can actually then use? Absolutely. Well, the context of those interviews is that our clients are counting on our advice and on the data from these interviews to make their most important decisions. And so the interview is a chronological walkthrough of somebody's career history. And so when it comes to making a decision based on, on their future performance, you don't have to rely on a role play, you don't have to rely on a psychological test. What we're able to do is we're able to parse out the data about their past performance that's most relevant to what's needed for the future and help you predict how likely they are to succeed. And our clients will tell you that we're able to help them um, with 90% accuracy. How, really I mean, that's super impressive. It's, it's, uh, it's almost surprising given that I would think you would need people to be willing to talk about things that don't go well or yes. their weaknesses yes. or mistakes they've made. Exactly. How, yeah, how important is that and how do you get them to, I mean, they know they're being interviewed. How is it that you're able to pull that information from them? Yeah, isn't it interesting? I mean, interview sounds like such a basic thing, right? Most of us interview in some context. Mm -hmm. uh, and yet the number one thing that most of us do go wrong about in the traditional interview process is we never actually look a person in the eye and say, gosh, you've been so successful. Now tell me about the five screw-ups that you had. Mm -hmm. uh, and so in our interview methodology, we really look at it as an even balance, right, between listening to the strengths and listening to the wins they've had and how they've achieved them and looking at things that didn't go well. Mm -hmm. And we actually find in our analysis that highest performers are most analytical and most insightful about their mistakes and unabashed about reflecting on their mistakes. That's interesting. Can you go so far as to say it's not so much the kind of mistake, but it's how they think about it and how they talk about Bingo. it? Bingo. Exactly. So one of the shocking findings in the CEO next door work is that executives who use the word failure to describe their past experiences are half as likely to go on to become successful CEOs compared to those who are almost clinical and objective and reflect on their past mistakes in a very matter-of-fact way as a way to process and learn for the future. Hmm. So it's not the mistake itself. It's all about how you process it and what you make of it. Wow, that's amazing. So tell us what you've done with those data once you collect them. So you've got this unique methodology of these longer, in-depth interviews. You distill that down into data, and now you're mapping that against long-term success in some way? Is that, is that, and where do you get those data? Well, so what we were able to do is we reached back out to the board members and investors to look at the outcomes data. So we took a sample from the database and looked at how did those executives actually perform? And then we partnered with SAS Institute and with Steve Kaplan to look at both kind of structured aspects of the data and just pure unstructured text to look mm -hmm. at how executives behave, how they talk about themselves and their experiences, and what actually tends to be a, a predictive and statistically significant for their future success. And how, how strong did you find that relationship to be? Now we're into the data analytics yes. of it. And you know, these things tend to be pretty imperfect. They're not these clear mappings that we kind of wish we would find. How, what kind of patterns did you find? How strong were the patterns? Well, so our uh, scientists and data miner partners will tell us that they were shocked and we were shocked by how strong the, the patterns were in the data. And in fact, so we didn't know what we would find. So we found a couple of things that were really shocking. Number one, a lot of the variables associated with your likelihood of getting hired into the C-suite role Compared to the variables that lead to success, I knew this there's, is a minimal, there's minimal overlap. So sadly, maybe that confirms your, your expectation, mm -hmm. but sadly what it takes to get the job versus what it takes to perform well in the job are quite different things. Well, this is why it's an inefficient market and Indeed. they need smart intermediaries like yourself. And that's why we need Moneyball leadership analytics. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> this is why we had this panel this year. So this exactly. is the first time we've talked about CEO analytics at this conference. And we figured this is a space where there's probably enough data out there now that good analytics could be run on it. And people probably are doing this. We need to find out what they're learning. If you were to provide, we're, gonna, we're near the end now. If, if you were to provide some, some advice to those making hiring decisions based on the book that you've written, the experience that you have, First, go out and buy the book, right? So that's that's the, the CEO that's, next door. The CEO next door. Brand new New York Times bestseller. What, what do you think one takeaway is for our listeners as they think about hiring decisions they may be making? The danger is that the more senior you go, the more there is a tendency to see, to think that I know it when I see it. Mm -hmm. And our data and the research out there proves that you absolutely need to be really clear about the behaviors you're looking for. And then the book we describe the four behaviors of highly successful CEOs. Mm -hmm. And you do need to bring the power of people analytics 
to the decisions of who gets to be in power and in leadership roles. I think it really is hard. It really resonates with me what you've said, that people who have been hiring for a while, they've been successful, they believe that they know it when they, they see it. They know it when they see it. And one of the things you're arguing for here is, well, you know, put your judgment to the test, collect the data. You guys have collected the data. And um, you're skeptical about someone being able to just do it intuitively. I, I want to highlight these four behaviors that you identify in your book. So you say that the, the CEOs that are successful have four qualities based on your interviews and your assessments. They are decisive. They are relentlessly reliable. That's a wonderful phrase. They adopt boldly. And they engage with stakeholders without shying away from conflict. I, I, I read a summary of this work when it first came out, before the, the book came out, mm -hmm. and I was delighted because we talk about some of these issues in our MBA courses, and, 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 stu and students aren't comfortable with some of these things. They seem pretty straightforward, but they don't... They're simple, but they're not easy. Exactly. They're very, really? very hard habits. No, no one, no people, nobody tells them that relentlessly reliable is one of the most important... It's really boring, right? But it's one well, of the most important ways you can be. So relentless reliability gave us a lot of trouble because it just sounds so pedestrian and simple, <laughs> yet it's actually proved to be the most powerful behavior. Is With that right? these four, okay. it's the only behavior that doubles your chances of getting hired and wow. increases your chances of high performance by 15 times. Tell us something, elaborate relentlessly reliable. How can people better understand what it means to be relentlessly reliable? The beauty about relentlessly reliability is it is actually simple. So if you want to think about being relentlessly reliable, start by showing up on time. Look mm -hmm. at how many times you've been late. It's mm -hmm. little habits that build to a perception and a reality of relentless reliability or lack thereof. Wonderful. Okay, thank you. Elena, very cool work. Appreciate you being at the conference. Congratulations on the new book and how well it is doing. The book is The CEO Next Door. It's just hit the New York Times bestselling list, and we wish you the best with all of your work going forward. Thank you, Kid. That Take was care. Elena Botello, partner in the leadership advisory firm GH Smart. Up next, one of Elena's collaborators. These guys uh, both work in the CEO analytics space. We're going to be talking to Steve Kaplan. Steve is the Neubauer Family Professor of Entrepreneurship and Finance at the University of Chicago. He's in the business school there, the Booth School. He is also the faculty director for the Polsky Center for Entrepreneurships. That, for entrepreneurship. that is a university-wide center, and it's one of the beautiful things that the University of Chicago does there. They break down some of the silos that happen in universities. They draw on resources from around that place. Steve heads up that effort. He is also speaking at a conference, and again, Steve is sliding into the panel right after lunch, and so we appreciate his coming on here in the last few minutes he has before he has to do that. But Steve is a longtime faculty member at Booth, and we are delighted to have him. Steve, welcome to the show. Thank you, Kay. Great to be here. Very glad to have you. Steve, just a personal re revelation. He was on faculty at the University of Chicago, and I was a grad student there, so it's a special treat for me to have him at the conference and on the show. So, Steve... You have not been to this conference before, and I'm, I might guess that you weren't as familiar with the people analytics community or world before getting this invitation. So before we dive into your work on CEO analytics, I'm curious to get your reaction to the conference. What have you thought? You've been here for a day and a half now. So first of all, let me congratulate you on an awesome program, an awesome group of people, and the content has been incredibly thought-provoking. So congratulations. That's great. Thank it's you. awesome. Thank you. Appreciate that. So w one of the things that we try to do, you know, People Analytics is fundamentally phenomenological. No discipline has a monopoly on what's going on. It's about something that's happening out there. And so we'd like to bring you an economist. We haven't had that many con economists in for the conference, and we want to make sure we're having economists in here in addition to the psychologists, in addition to the sociologists. So one of the things that that you've done as an economist is to look at CEO traits and success. It comes out of your work on entrepreneurship. I'd like to hear a little bit about how you got into this space. So my background is, you know, I'm a finance professor, and the research I've done over the years has been on venture capital, private equity, corporate governance. And the goal in a lot of that research is trying to understand what creates value, what creates value for a company. And, of course... A big creator of value is the people. And it's always something as an investor you're trying to figure out who are the right people. Steve, can I interrupt you real quickly? You say, of course, and I'm, I'm, I might have thought that some financial economists wouldn't have known that, of course, was the answer there. Um, well, I'm, 
you know. Uh, well, I mean, what, what would you have said 20 years ago? I would have said the same thing. Is that I right? Think, okay. I think the P, I mean, if you look at the frameworks that I use in my course for evaluating a venture deal or a private equity deal, people is in both of those frameworks. And, you know, I've been teaching that course for 20 years. Okay. So, yeah. And I think, uh, I think the, the economists over time have figured that out. I think 20 years ago when they did their models, like you just assumed someone had ability and you had yep. no idea what it was. Yep. And, and in fact, some people thought all people were the same. Over time, economists, I think, have come to the realization that people are different <laughs> and that uh, you, you can have people who are more able and less able and that it actually matters. Okay. So this is something that you have emphasized and and you, you're in searching for value in startups and searching for how venture capitalists can find value, you, you focused on people, but that, that then pushed your research. Oh, in so so how did I get there? So, so I've been doing private equity, venture, corporate governance, and um, I don't know, it must have been 10, 11 years ago, somebody introduced me to Jeff Smart, who's the founder of mm -hmm. GH Smart, and he is, you know, GH Smart. And uh, he said, you know, we have all these assessments and we think we know what's in them, but we kind of want to understand better what's in them. And so I said, I raised my hand and said, please, please, please give me the data because no one has that kind of data right. on C-level people. I right. mean, it just doesn't exist uh, anywhere else. And so he said, okay, here, take the data, tell me what's in it. And we looked at the data and we were able to say, here are the characteristics. They, GH Smart, you know, Elena probably talked about this. They rate... Uh, all their executives on 30 different things. Okay. And those are constant across all their assessments. You can take those 30 dimensions and look at which of those variables actually predicts performance. Mm -hmm. And that's what we did in the first paper. Mm -hmm. And what were the findings there, Steve? So the findings were you've got, when you take these 30 characteristics, in that first data set, they compress into really two factors. Mm -hmm. One is general talent. So some people are score higher on all these questions than okay. others. So call that ability. It's kind of the sum of all the variables. But then the second one was fascinating. Controlling for talent, there is a negative correlation between people who execute, who are efficient, proactive, persistent, mm -hmm. and people who have interpersonal and team skills, who are you know, listen, good listeners, treat people with respect, team players. You say they tend to fall in one or the other they're, because they're they negatively correlated. They are negatively correlated. Sort of mm -hmm. it's an orthogonalization of the data, which you know, is a big word, but it's yeah. basically saying holding the talent constant, you have people vary across those dimensions. And yeah. Some people are execution, some are interpersonal, some are in between. And what was really interesting is we, you know, I asked people, so... Which, which, which side which, do you think is better? Which is better. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, and when you ask this in a big group of people, it's like 50-50. Okay. And it turns out for performance, it's execution. It's execution. The interpersonal, it's not negative, mm -hmm. but it's irrelevant. Wow. Wow. And do we know anything about what it mean, what it, what it, what, what's required to be better at those things, at execution? So here's what I would say. And Elaine, I think, gave you some of the, the examples that, that she's seen from her work. So it's always very comforting when, you know, the data, you know, confess, and then the <laughs> practitioners actually say, yeah, that's, right. that's what's in the data, and they have stories. But what I would say is, is the following. Take um, some of the people who are kind of the archetypical executives of the last 20 years, a Jack Welch, a Jeff Bezos, or Steve Jobs. These people are not the most agreeable folks in the world, right. but right. man, do those guys execute. Right. And you know, when, I, when I wrote this paper and, and was presenting it, this was like eight years ago, I had a picture, and you'll see it in the presentation, Jack Welch and Jeff Immelt. Jeff Immelt was getting a lot of positive press. He's the good listener, he's the impersonal guy, he's Got whatever. It. I had an X over him ten, or eight, ten years ago relative to Jack Welch, wow. and that turned out to be predictive. You know, it's one observation, but it's very consistent with the data. And then the, the, the flip side of that is a Jeff Bezos, if you ask people what his organization does and why he's so successful, his organization is built for speed. Mm -hmm. It was built to get mm -hmm. stuff done mm -hmm. and that he would much rather like try something and see it fail mm -hmm. than not do it. And mm -hmm. that's exactly what the data say. Mary just said it. Mary Barra just said it earlier. She said, what, is, what has she done differently since she became CEO? Mm -hmm. It was great. She's more impatient. 
What does that mean? Impatient means getting stuff done. And that's what's in the data. That is so interesting. We've just got about a minute, Steve. Where are you going next? What do you want to do with this next? So what these data, you know, these assessments are incredibly rich. And so I've like barely scratched the surface. And so the thing we don't control for in any of this is this situation. Like, you know, whenever we give this, it's like, well, man, is somebody in this industry able to do it in that industry? And can you control for that? And, and the fact is everything I told you, like, doesn't control for that. Yeah. And so it's got to be the case, or I shouldn't say it's got to be, it's likely the case that there are other variables that matter that are situational. And so yeah. being able to code that is, is one project. Another project is we've got, in some cases, more than one executive from the same company. So we can see the interactions about, you know, so if you have a CEO who's, yeah, right. who's, like, who's a real execution person, do you have a CFO yeah. who's not? If you have a CEO who's not so strong in execution, do you have a COO who is? Mm-hmm. So those are the, those would be the two things that uh, I'd like to do with that, the data going forward. We're gonna, you're going to get turned into a full-on organizational psychologist the way <laughs> you're going, Steve. <laughs> That's fun, man. So the I mean, situation, it's just so underappreciated in performance evaluation, talent evaluation. Anything that can be done there is a huge contribution. And then it's Absolutely. A, putting these teams together is of great interest to everybody. We're about to talk to some baseball guys, for example, and those kinds of complementarities are tough to get at, especially if you don't have a lot of data. Mm-hmm. So I would love to see someone as sophisticated as you working on a problem as hard as that. I'm going to try. All right. That was Steve Kaplan. Steve, thanks for being here with us today. Thank you so much, Kate. It's a pleasure. You bet. Steve Kaplan, professor at the Booth School. He is a longtime professor of entrepreneurship there. He heads the entrepreneurship program for the university and is a contributor at our conference here today. That has been the first half of our special presentation from the People Analytics Conference here. We still have half to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to a Business Radio special presentation from the floor of the Wharton People Analytics Conference in Philadelphia. Here again is Professor Kate Massey. Welcome back. You are listening to a SiriusXM Business Radio powered by the Wharton School special presentation as we are live here at the 2018 Wharton People Analytics Conference in Sitter City, Philadelphia. Fifth annual Wharton People Analytics Conference. I'm your host, Cade Massey, faculty here at Wharton and co-director of Wharton People Analytics. Also co-host of Wharton Moneyball, a show we run on this channel every Wednesday morning. We have two guests in the second half of this program, but before we get to them, we had a chance to sit down with two other guests, special winners in our startup competition yesterday. Our first is Josh Jarrett. Josh is with the organization Koru, and Koru run one most impactful of the competitors in the startup competition yesterday. We're here with Josh Jarrett from Koru. Josh, welcome. Thank you for having me. Really excited to be here. We're excited to have you. We were excited to see your presentation yesterday, your pitch, and uh, congratulations on pulling in one of the two awards. Well, thank you. It's a great conference, great chance to get exposure. Thank you. Glad to to hear that. Can you tell us and our audience a little bit about what Koru does? Sure. Koru is a predictive hiring company, which means we are looking to help companies predict the performance of job applicants before they ever meet them. Wow. Okay. That sounds difficult. Uh, it uses, you know, so there's some data involved, but, uh, and some, some human p- processes too. Okay, so, so tell us how, this sounds like it would be very useful if you can do it well. So how is it that you're able to do this? Sure, we do two things. One is we have to measure the skills that matter most in someone. And so it turns out that most of the things on someone's resume don't predict their future success. Okay. And so we've looked at that. We, set, found, we did a project with an investment bank, and the only thing that was predictive on there was where you went to school. And the more elite the school was, the worse it was because you, <laughs> you left sooner. Oh, really? Yeah. So, so it hurt their retention because you were more marketable in some way. Somebody right. else wanted to hire you. Away. Right, right, wow. right. Okay. So instead what we do is we look to measure the competencies that we already know matter, things like someone's grit and teamwork and curiosity and ownership, things that uh, folks here at uh, Wharton have researched. Uh-huh. And so we have a 20-minute online pre-interview, ask questions about what skills have you used in previous jobs, what do you, how do you like to work. That fills out the picture of a candidate. So that's the first piece, which is to measure the skills that matter. Okay. And then the second piece is to use machine learning and predictive analytics to pattern match the answers to that, the, that, uh, that pre-interview yes. and other information on the resume or other places with the pattern of people who have succeeded in the past. Okay. 
So how are you coding in those interviews the data that you're going to use in the second stage? So you're doing what many people would do in some form as an interview, but you're doing something different with, those, with, the, with the results of that interview. That's right. So we've had to work a lot to validate the way to measure these things, but there, you can look at uh, past experiences. If you look at someone's out-of-work activities, extracurriculars, how long they've done them, the highest role they attained, that's something that Angela Duckworth here at Wharton showed is a valid measure of grit. It predicts how long Teach for America teachers stay on the job and other things like that. We can code that into the process so now there's a meaningful, objective way to measure grit that you can bring that into the process and now mm -hmm. have hard data on soft skills. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What kinds of results are you seeing? You're relatively newly into this. This is probably one of those things where the, the more data you get, the more accurate you'll be. Where are you right now on that trajectory? Yeah, so uh, we've been doing this about two years, so we're starting to see that second, third feedback loop and mm -hmm. see some really exciting data. Uh, we typically are very much focused on business outcomes, so performance, retention, diversity as the three business outcomes, mm -hmm. and there's efficiency gains too. Mm -hmm. But uh, there's a project we just did with a logistics company. Their three-month turnover was over 50%, and working with them, it's now down to 13%. Wow, okay. That sounds like uh, valuable resource for organizations who need to work on whatever the issue is. In this case, it was retention. It's exciting, an exciting use of technology. We're glad to know about you guys. We wish you the best with the work. Tell us real quickly, how big an organization is it? How many people? Sure, we're about 20 people. We're based in Seattle, Washington. Seattle. Okay, all right. Well, thank you for joining us here in Philadelphia. Wish you the best with your work. Thanks for having me. You bet. That was Josh Jarrett, Koru, winner of this year's startup competition for the Most Impactful Prize. We're live at the Wharton People Analytics Conference, the fifth annual Wharton People Analytics Conference in Center City, Philadelphia. Sitting down with Melissa Marsh of Plastark. We're sitting with Melissa because she won the, her company won, the Creative Use of Data Prize yesterday in the startup competition. It's one of the two prizes we give as a part of the startup competition. And we wanted to hear a little bit more about Melissa's work and what Plastark is up to. Melissa, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Delighted to have you. Thank you for the, the int interest in our, in our conference and the submission to the startup competition. It was cool to see your pitch yesterday. Congratulations on that win. Thank you very much. To begin with, Plastark. What is the origin of the name Plastark? What does it mean? Well, it sounds more normal on the West Coast than it does the East Coast, <laughs> I have to admit. Um, it's a contraction or portmanteau of plastic and architecture. Okay. And the proposition is that through social research, through technology, through bringing information, particularly about people and occupancy to architecture, to space, uh, we can make that more flexible, more desirable for people. So really the blend of people sciences and building sciences. Can you give us an example of one of your applications or projects? Um, we spend a lot of time thinking about the intersection of people and data and understanding how space is used over time. Uh, we help organizations, you know, anything from the Fortune 500 to the startup uh, to make the best use of their space um, and to integrate uh, the experience of the space with the other uh, kind of workplace services um, mm -hmm. so that the um, employee experience of an environment is composed of the physical environment, the commute to that space, the technology they're using when they get there, the people and policies, mm -hmm. all of that comes together for that employee experience, which is so much of what people are talking about these days. Okay. How do you go about solving those problems? What, what data are you collecting? We are collecting a range of data um, from, like I mentioned, occupancy, understanding what spaces are being used at what times, uh, sentiment, uh, whether that's through a survey instrument or through mining social media feeds, either inside an organization or externally to that organization. We often say that we are blending big and little data. So mm -hmm. we are uh, taking as much of the building information systems, big data, the data mm -hmm. that's being produced by the building itself, or by the interaction between R buildings. Just to make sure, what do you mean by data being produced by a building? Is like this is passive data on thermal and things like that? Or, yeah, or? absolutely. So okay. buildings like you might imagine aircraft or cars are full of digital equipment these okay. days. So everything from the number of times an elevator 
elevator runs up and down to an escalator, how many people it's carrying, um, the temperature within a building, all of these things are part of a sensible or sentient building. Um, And so when people interact with that, there's now uh, the building itself is a data collection mechanism like never before. And you're blending those big data sources with, you said, small data. What's an example of small data here? So small data would be conversations with people, stories, understanding what that experience is, what's going on, how that building is operating for people. And then medium data might be uh, a survey that's getting uh, between those two scales to understand uh, the intersection of the building, the people. Got it. All right. Well, my sense is that this is one of the hot growing corners in the people analytics space. Congratulations on the win yesterday. And thanks again for being here. You bet. Now our next guest, Brad Grant, is joining us. Brad is the Vice President of Baseball Operations, Strategy, and Administration for the Cleveland Indians. That means he assists the Baseball Operations Department in all facets, including the coordination. This is terrible. This is what you do, coordination of capital projects and (laughs) strategy. I don't know what I do right now. (laughs) So, Brad, we'll find out. We'll find out. Brad Grant, welcome to the show. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks for having me, Kate. Brad, we're delighted to have you. You're going to have to tell us what it means to be Vice President of Baseball Operations, Strategy, and Administration. Uh, and, and it's a relatively recent collection of responsibilities you've been given, is what I gather. So what, how would you describe what you're responsible for there? Um, I'm still trying to figure that out. So my career, though, it started 25 years ago with the Indians. I was actually an intern with the Indians and then worked my way up through amateur scouting and have overseen the, the draft portion of it for the past 10 years. Mm-hmm. and then moved into a baseball operations role. So my experience, my background is much more on the, on the amateur scouting, the selection side of things, and right. trying to figure out uh, new things within baseball operations, where to advance capital projects, sports science projects, those type of things. Now. Well, give us, so we're going to hear more about the draft side since that, yeah. t- two things. One, that's your expertise and, and experience, but also the Indians are known for being especially um, advanced in the, in, 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 the way they, in the way they scout and draft. But in this new role, what, what's an example of an additional responsibility you're picking up? So you mentioned sports science, for example. Yeah, so obviously baseball is, is advancing in, in understanding everything that's happening on the field. So there's all these new innovations in terms of StatCast and TrackMan and Blast Motion. So we can measure the exit velocity off of a bat. We can measure the spin rate of a, of a uh, baseball. We can measure the actual movements on the field. Um, so it's, it's, it's helping our um, department's collectively research those different areas and then actually ensuring that we go and, and purchase those ones that we feel work and what could help us advance. I'm sure that you guys were doing some of those things before. So is your being on top of that and the draft a way to better integrate them? Is it a way to make sure that people are talking to each other inside the organization? Yeah. So the way in which we structure our organization really is that there are no silos. So for us to be effective, for us to, to um, continue to, to perform at the level that we're performing at, we have to draft our own players, we have to select our own players, and then we have to develop our own players. So if you look back to the last two years, we were in the World Series against the Cubs uh, in 16, and then this year won 102 games. That success came because of the selection process and because of our development process. We had 75% of our at-bats and 75% of the innings pitched were by players that we actually sp- actually spent time within our system. And that's is that high? I gather that's high in if Major League Baseball? If you look at the other, pl- other teams, it was about 25%. Oh, my. 75 versus 25? Yeah, actually came from within our development system. And I'm assuming that that's a more cost-effective way to develop a player? Yes. So in baseball, we don't have salary caps. We don't have those type of things. So um, we with the Indians have to usually make up about $100 million in payroll inefficiencies every year. So we don't have the same revenues that New York or Boston or Chicago have. So New York, Boston, Chicago, L.A., how much are they spending on their payroll each year these days? They're spending close to $200 million. And you guys are spending? Uh, around $100 million. <laughs> about, So about half as much. About half as and much. And yet you've got to play on the same ball field. Yep. And you guys have been doing this successfully. I mean, we, I like to say I brag on you guys so much because I believe you're one of the best run professional sports organizations out there and this is nice evidence of it that you've got like wins per dollar spent must be at the top of major league baseball or near the top yeah when you sometimes it gets frustrating because you can't spend the way that the the other team can spend but that's what motivates you to keep doing it is 
Well, over the last five years, we've had the best record in the American League, and we, we've gone to the World Series and won 102 games, like I said. So that motivation keeps on, it keeps you moving, and it keeps on uh, forcing you to overcome that $100 million in payroll inefficiencies. Now, Brad, I know that the, the ways that you distinguish yourselves, not only from other baseball teams, but from other, other sports organizations, there, there are many, many pieces that go into it. But if you were to start at kind of the top of the list... And we won't hold you to it. Not, there's not necessarily a right or wrong answer. But if you, if you were to try to say the factors that you think most distinguish you that allow you to perform better at evaluating and, and acquiring talent in other organizations, what do you think it is? Sure. It's a great question. Um, I, obviously, talent ha- has to be the first and forefront. You have to have the talent to be able to you know, play the game. Once, you, once that's assessed, then I think it's the character assessment side to it. So baseball's a game of failure. Baseball's a really hard game to go through. You're going to hit adversity. Um, you're going to hit those things where all of a sudden everybody is just as good as me. So it's what's allow you to overcome that adversity. Um, and learning and understanding with our players and also training our players of how to handle that adversity. So you're not, you're, you're one of 30 organizations in baseball that are trying to do this. You think you do it better than other people? Uh, other teams? I, a lot of teams do it really well, uh, but I think it's something that we continuously try to push and continuously try to look for advantages to do it. So I think a lot of teams now have the, have the talent side and the talent acquisition down. Now it's how do you advance your players? How do you ensure that you're continuously given those resources to continue to get better every day? Well, talk, talk, talk to us a little bit about that because we, as outsiders, we tend to we see the the more glamorous part of um, talent acquisition, which is maybe the draft, maybe just the first round of your thirty round draft, um, some big free agent signings, that that kind of stuff. We don't see the years of players brought along in the minors, or we don't see the pitcher in the locker room after he got shelled. What, what do you guys do on the development front? So you've assessed, you've brought in, and now they're not just this inert thing. You're trying to cultivate them in some way. How do you do that? Yeah, it, it, it takes time. It's a, we, we have a sports performance department now um, that, will, that works with them every single day, and we have different um, classes, basically. We're 30-minute classes where we come in and try to teach new things. Um, we're continuously trying to learn as an organization, and we're continuously trying to get our players to learn, too. Hold on. You're telling me that you put Major League Baseball players through 30-minute classes on a regular basis? Really? We, yeah, they're optional classes every morning at spring training. But, yeah, there's a 30-minute class that can be how to deal with fear, how to overcome fear. Or wow. we have different topics every day to bring in different speakers. How well day. attended are they? They're very well attended, and it's not just players. It's coaches. It's front office. It's scouts. Everybody's invited to them each and every day. Is that something that, that other organizations do? I don't know if other organizations are doing it. I'm sure everyone's doing something similar, but it's just trying to find those ways to separate yourself out and find those competitive advantages. I would think that part of that would be the culture. Is it, is it, is it, is it cool to go to those classes? You, know, you could imagine someone trying to do that kind of thing and the players just don't just don't don't go or they don't they don't reaffirm the process yeah i think it's something that we focused a lot on so we've we have a a new department it's a learning and development department and jay hennessy who was the commander of the navy seals has come and actually leads that department for us with the indians so when you have someone like jay who has all these connections and actually has the ability to talk about a lot of those things too um, people come to listen. Yeah, that's a different level of credibility, yeah. right? You're, so your players are unique. They're not just your average college graduate or high school graduate. They're, they're special in some ways. And the, a, a man who's worked with the Navy SEALs would understand special. And, and, and that there's a, you know, it's a different kind of training, a different kind of mentality. It, it, exactly. But it, yes, it's different, completely different level. We're playing a game and they're doing a lot of other things. Right, but right. at the same time, a lot of those things do transfer over. Um, and, I, and I think even though we can't, uh, you know, spend $200 million on payroll, we do invest back into those resources. And we do have an advantage in baseball in that we've got three to four years to develop the player before they actually get to the, mm-hmm. to the professional, to the major league level. Do you, have a, do, you have a, do you have a favorite example from your days running the scouting draft, running the draft, basically? Do you have a favorite example of a player that you think the system... Something about the way you guys built the process, the system you built, identified a player that might have slipped through the cracks otherwise and, and turned out to be a good one. Now, look, it's going to be an anecdote. We won't hold you to it. We understand. I'm asking you literally for the anecdote. Yeah. Um, Cody Allen is a, is a great example of that. So Cody Allen, who's currently our, our closer, the back-end pitcher, who's had all the success for us now, he was a 28th-round draft pick. Um, we drafted him out of junior college first in Florida. Um, didn't sign him, couldn't come to an agreement. He went to High Point University, North Carolina, and then we drafted him again. 
Um, and this time, it was the 28th round the first time and then the 32nd round the second time. Um, but once we got him into our system, we knew that he was a starting pitcher. He had been hurt in, in junior college. He wanted to go and make sure that he was completely healthy in college. Did that, but we also knew that if we converted him back into the bullpen, his breaking ball would play better. His fastball would probably play up. So as soon as we got him into our system, we, we immediately put him into a bullpen role instead of a starting role, and he moved through our system within two years. Mm-hmm. It, that identification, was that done through mainly traditional scouting methods, or was that some, something that advanced, that, that took that seeing a guy who's a starting pitcher at this level is going to better fit as a, as a relief pitcher in the majors? It was a combination. So it was a combination of the, the traditional scouting side of identifying the breaking ball and identifying those things. We also did a lot of mechanical assessments and knew that to keep Cody healthy and to put him in the best position, it would be best to transfer him into a bullpen role. And then we also did a lot with the statistical side of it and then blend those all together to be able to, to accurately make a decision. Okay. So we're near the end of our time with you. If you could... Tell us a little bit about what you're excited about now. You've been given kind of, not quite free reign, but broader (laughs) reign within the Indians. You guys are, in my experience, you know, open and thoughtful, unusually so. What's something that you're excited about playing with or adding or getting to know? Um, I think that's a great question. It's more, I have, instead of doing every single day, so on the draft side, it was doing, doing, doing to get prepared for the draft. You had, to, you had to draft people in June. And now it's more of a, it's a learning experience. So I can learn what other baseball operations, what, what we're doing in baseball operations, and then I can learn from others. So this conference is an example of that to learn how Teach for America, who I think you're having on next, actually mm-hmm. goes through um, their process and their selection process, learn from Wharton through their selection process, those things to make our selection process ultimately mm-hmm. better. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I appreciate your being here, Brad. You're trying to learn from people like TFA and Ward Admissions. We're trying to learn from you. You gave us many, many, many <laughs> good examples. Um, and we wish you the best with your work with the Cleveland Indians. Thank you, Keith. That was Brad Grant, Vice President of Baseball Operations Strategy and Administration for the Cleveland Indians. He's here for the conference. And uh, he is part of a contingent, actually, that came down from Cleveland for the conference. And we're delighted to have a little time with him. We're live at the Wharton People Analytics Conference in Center City, Philadelphia. Next up, Michael Metzger. Michael is the Senior Managing Director at Teach for America, or TFA, as we often refer to them. Michael has used People Analytics to increase applications to core members um, and conversion rates and other predictive analytic tools to improve the entire process that they go through to recruit their people. Michael, welcome to the show. Thanks, Kate. How's it going? Uh, going really fine. Appreciate you making the time, stepping away uh, from things for a little while. You have been at the conference before? You were last year. I yes? was last year, yeah. So TFA was our first ever partner in the case competition. So every year we bring in a not-for-profit, and we run a case competition with student groups around the world to bring some insight into data and a problem that you guys have. So you, you guys are... You know, you mostly don't need outside help because you're so sophisticated, but you thought it might be useful to hear some different perspectives. And so you shared some data, and you really got the case competition going off on the right foot. And we've enjoyed learning from you since. I can tell you, Michael, I don't know if I've said this to you in person, but we our, our re-engineering of our admissions process greatly influenced and inspired by the very first presentation TFA made at our conference four years ago, so the first annual um, people on the conference. And, and, and there are things that we say now right. that we adopted from you guys. So we say things like, we're never going to be done. Because <laughs> y'all said it in that very first presentation. And when we first heard it, we, we were just like, oh, geez, that's daunting to hear. And then we realized the wisdom of it. And we say it all the time. And you know what? It's not something we say. It's true. We're never going to be done reengineering admissions. Never going to be done. So tell us a little bit about what your responsibilities are on a day-to-day basis at Teach for America. Yeah, so I think um, in our role, we, we really try to look at the entire uh, recruitment to admission spectrum from the first point of contact all the way to when a core member is admitted, confirmed, and starts uh, their teaching experience and tries to figure out both how we can make the process more efficient, uh, more actionable, and increase the ROI. And really, that, that requires us to really think about strategy from a number of perspectives, from one, from a very analytical and predictive analytics building models we do a lot of forecasting, and we also do a lot of insights work. I think like, the thing that we've learned over the years is to really 
get to the strongest results, we've had to triangulate those three things together to really create actionable change. What do you mean by insights work? What was that? Yeah, so a lot of times we, we measure like the percentage of people who would not take an offer and we cut that by you know their, how selective schools they came from, what their leadership was, but we never really actually like sort of like ask them. So like, why don't you take our offer? And like uh, <laughs> trying to actually understand sort of the psychology behind the offer process. And that's just one example. And we started to realize that if we could better understand our prospects in terms of what their motivations and barriers were, we can better re-engineer our system to make it more actionable and more uh, friendly to our, our candidates. It's a nice compliment to traditional data analysis. And those of us who play with big data and, um, and enjoy the insights you yeah. can spend from big data sometimes forget that there are other ways to go about it. Just go ask the question. Can be, it's certainly complementary to the, to the traditional data analysis. But give us a, a little bit more on, on what TFA is doing because most folks know that you're bringing folks out of college that might not go into teaching otherwise. You're putting them into largely underserved districts. But you may not, they may not know the volume of applicants you get. So you guys are looking at how many per year are applying for these jobs? Yes, yeah, so we're looking at about 50,000 applicants a year. Okay, for well, how many positions? So what's interesting about Teach for America is that we consider ourselves selective but not competitive. So essentially, everybody who sort of meets our bar will get accepted. Okay. And that's caused us to have a variable number of, of core members per year. What does it range around? So last year, we brought in around 3,500. Okay. Uh, this year, we're looking to get around 3,800. Our okay. peak has been, uh, I think, 4,500. Okay. And so, yeah, so it, it can vary over time, and that's one of the interesting challenges that we have. To right. Be fair. It's a nice problem to have, It's right? a nice problem I mean, to have today, can, yeah. As many good people as you run into, you can hire. That's a, a thing many organizations wish they could do. But you're talking about a selection rate of like 6% or something, which is... Very competitive, as you said, um, or very selective, as you said, not competitive. So you're taking one of the things that I think uh, allows you guys to get really good at this is that you've got, a, you've got such volume yeah. for kind of a standardized position. And it's, I know that each placement is different, but sure. it is the same job largely. And so you, it, the cynic would, not the cynic, but at least <laughs> the, the snark would say, you better get good at this job. You've got 50,000 people yeah, right. a year <laughs> looking for the same job. You've been doing it for, I don't know, 17, 18 years now. Um, what, what, I know you haven't been there from the beginning, but what's your sense of how the process has changed and what's improved over time in the way you do this? Yeah, I think there's a few things that have changed. It's sort of like one in, in terms of, I think, how we view our organization. I think one of the ways we've sort of evolved is realizing that change doesn't just happen in the classroom, but we're looking for people who can lead both inside and outside, which takes a slightly different skill set. I think as now, you said, you know, we've been around for about 25 years or so, okay. we have about 45,000 alumni. So we're starting to see the impact that they've had both on communities and systems. And that's actually taught us a lot about sort of who we want to pick as leaders because we consider Teach for America to be, say, a quote-unquote lifelong commitment. But we really we see that the change happens in sort of the second part as well as the first part of our program. So doing the two years of, of the teaching experience is obviously vitally important and gives our core members ground level experience, but what they, how they take that and transform that to create systems change is equally as important. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating because you're talking about trying to fine tune an admission, a hiring process yeah. aimed at filling a job that is only kind of an intermediate goal exactly. of yours. You, you want them, your actual objective is to what happens when those folks graduate from your program, move into other roles. How is it you're, you're, you're measuring what they do after they leave the actual teaching positions. If that's what you really care about and that's what you're trying to learn from, how are you operationalizing that? Yeah, it's actually an, a new challenge that we're undertaking. I think uh, this year is sort of, sort of the first year we've, under, we've sort of started to look at that. We've done a lot of sort of analysis and trying to both, A, data mine, since we now have 45,000 alumni, just what they're doing, and then trying to also norm just across our regions by looking at uh, people, who, core members who have done the program, starting in 2008 all the way out and looking at their trajectories. And by better understanding their trajectories, we can better understand those sort of key inflection points or moments mm -hmm. where that, that put people to in, in places of greatness and doing great things for kids and communities. Mm -hmm. And now we tried to map those back towards what skills, mindsets, and orientations that they have both when they were in the core and both when they were applying for the core. Mm -hmm. And trying to figure out then what's going to be predictive of that is kind of the work we're currently undertaking. What's an example of the kind of work that you hope your alumni go into, just to make it more concrete? Yeah, sure. So I think one thing that we love to see is, is systems level change for communities. So people who can become school leaders in underprivileged or underserved areas and sort of create change both inside their school system and inside the community is, is, mm -hmm. is one strong example. Mm -hmm. But to be fair, like in terms of our foundations, um, just think of somebody who goes into you know, law or something like that. 
who then sort of diverts their pathway from maybe being a corporate lawyer to being one that's sort of helping nonprofit non and systems. That's equally as important as well. Mm -hmm. I think one interesting, like, just, uh, you know, story, this is, is, like, I was at a dinner a few years ago. Uh, we were raising money at the Waldorf, and there was a hedge fund manager who is a former core member who was doing nothing in terms of sort of, uh, he was working just for a hedge fund at that point, which, um, and he sort of, gave the speech talking about his experience. And I was sitting at a table with a bunch of other people who were sort of working in, on Wall Street. And all of a sudden, like, as he talked about his experience, I just saw the conversation at our table change from whatever they were talking about before to thinking about their communities and their systems. And all of a sudden, you see people who are, who are talking about a problem they, would, they have an experience they probably don't interact with on a very sort of routine basis, which right. led to sort of a diffusion effect across the room. Mm -hmm. And you think of all those people then going out into all of their networks, and that's also how change happens as so, well. So that person was a conduit from exactly. between two very different worlds. Exactly. Interesting. Um, I often hold Teach for America up as a model for hiring, essentially. I, and I say that you guys are as good as anybody I know on hiring. If you were to glean two, three best practices that you think you guys really do do well, that other organizations might be well advised to at least consider... What do you think those things would be? Yeah, it's a, well, thank you for that. Um, and uh, it's, it's a good question. I think one is we, we know our target audience. Uh, we have years of, of data, so we know who we're looking for. I think when we first started in the, or when I first started working on the team, we were sort of doing sort of a more mass sort of approach and seeing who would come to the, come to the well. Now we have a much more targeted headhunting approach by using, looking at all of our data, we can better predict who's going to get in and be mm -hmm. successful, and, and that allows us to target well. I think the second thing is that... Um, we don't sit on data. I think we used to uh, a lot more, but now we actionalize data and we use it to make predictions to make uh, our funnel more efficient. And what I mean by that is that you know we used to try to say you know we need to get every core member who who applies to stay with the process. A number of them withdraw before they get an accept an admissions decision, and that's hard when you have uh, you know a recruiter has a hundred prospects who are applying. Mm -hmm. You know we we, we and, but then we looked at our data and we realized by like developing some models, we could really predict who's likely to withdraw and who's likely to get in and develop a much more targeted strategy to keep those sort of high-risk people throughout the process to increase our overall yield. So I said, like, we're constantly adapting from our data to mm -hmm. learn from it by mm -hmm. developing models. And then I think the, the third thing that we do is that we, are, we, we, use, we have a very sort of like personalized approach and we have a very sort of uh, way to sort of target our people and better understand their barriers and motivations. And then sort of based on that, we developed a number of case studies, a number of sort of actions to better sort of support and help our people throughout the pipeline. Make that a little more real. I don't quite understand what that means. Yeah. So, for example, let's just say someone has uh, career concerns. Um, and, you know, a lot of people, a lot, one of our barriers is, is, to be honest, is parents. Parents think Maybe that's, don't know. Yeah, that's not what they wanted their kid to do when they graduated. That's not what they wanted college. their kids to do. Yeah, their kids at an Ivy League school. They're paying you know forty grand a year. I want. They think like Teacher America. I think our name actually breeds some challenges in some cases. Yeah. Like they're going to be a teacher. Like wait, yeah. what's what's going on? Yeah. Um, and trying to better understand when that's a barrier, and then having a set of resources to help overcome that barrier is I things see. that we've started to take on and work through. Well, listen, we love the work that you do, both the cause and how you go about it. Thanks a lot. That was Michael Metzger. Michael is the Senior Managing Director at Teach for America. This has been a special presentation of Wharton Business Radio. We are broadcasting live today from the fifth annual Wharton People Analytics Conference, the 2018 Wharton People Analytics Conference. We started with uh, Lena Botello of GH Smart and Steve Kaplan of the University of Chicago. They both work on CEO analytics. And then we heard from a couple of our startup competition winners, Josh Jarrett of Koru and Melissa Marsh of Plastark, both winners yesterday in the startup competition. In the second half of the show, we talked to Brad Grant of the Cleveland Indians and Michael Metzger of Teach for America. All of these folks here with us today and yesterday on uh, Talking People Analytics. So for everyone here at the conference, Wharton People Analytics, Sirius XM's business radio channel, we appreciate you taking the time to tune in. I'm Cade Massey, and until next time, thank you for listening. For more insight from business radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.